Our scripture reading today is from Hebrews 11. I'll be reading selected passages. They'll be on the screen or in your worship folder or in the Pew Bible, or if you can read along if you brought your own Bible. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it the people of old receive their commendation. By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts. And through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. And without faith, it is impossible to please him, for whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. For if they'd been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents, because they saw that the child was beautiful, and they were not afraid of the king's edict. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. And what more can I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, and Samuel, and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. And all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. The word of the Lord. Amen. Thank you, Gigi. Uh, Good morning. My name is Drew Bennett. I'm one of the pastors here at Church of the Redeemer, uh, and it's good to see 
all of you this morning. We are continuing today in our series in the book of Hebrews, uh, looking again for the second week now at this chapter in Hebrews 11. There's so much here uh, that we can't possibly get to it all, although I might try this morning, which is bad news for you probably. But I do, I'm grateful to have another crack at this chapter. Uh, Because, to be quite honest, what is described here in these verses, I mean, you know, this this feels like this is rated PG-13, isn't it? The sense of being sawn in two and all the, I mean, you know, the middle school boys in the room are really excited that the Bible has those kinds of things in it. And yet, we read it and we can think that way, but what I want you to see is this is a description of what should be the normative Christian life. That is, Hebrews 11 is garden variety, everyday Christianity. And immediately you can see the problem, and the problem is just this, that what passes today for Christianity looks nothing like this. Why is that? And I believe it's what this this book has been trying to teach us, that it's because we've lost our bearings in regards to the gospel. The book of Hebrews is about the gospel. And what happens is, is if you take the gospel out of Christianity, you take the power out of Christianity for living the kind of life that's described here. You're left with something that looks nothing like what is described in these verses. So let me explain a little bit more, okay? If you look, this is by way of introduction and kind of um, recapitulation of what we talked about last week. Okay, so we're reviewing for a minute. But look there in Hebrews 1 through 4. Uh, I mean, excuse me, Hebrews 11, 1 through 4. You see this word there a number of times, this word commendation. We're told that the ancients received their commendation by faith. Abel Verse 5, was commended as righteous because of the sacrifices he made to God. And that word commendation, there's a very specific meaning. Uh, it, it, it really comes to us in a, if you have to imagine a legal context, it means, uh, it's a legal word that means that God bore witness or he gave testimony to these people that he was pleased with them. So you have to imagine the setting being a courtroom and imagine yourself in court and you're defending yourself and you're struggling to make your case, and all of a sudden an authoritative witness walks in into the middle of the proceedings and gives a testimony that makes the case for you. That's that word commendation. I mean, this is what's happening. And it's what these people in Hebrews 11 had that made the difference in the way they lived their life. It was the power source. It was their secret for the power that they needed to live the way This passage describes their lives. They had an experience with God that permanently changed their self-understanding. By giving them a testimony that he was completely and absolutely pleased with them. He accepted them. He approved of them. He endorsed endorsed them. And the biblical word, you see it there in verse 4, is righteous. They were commended as righteous. But look carefully. I want to get into the details again, just in the introduction, here at the very beginning. It says, verse 4, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts. Uh, this has always been a very confusing verse to me. I mean, what is it? And, and when I, you know, it's retelling the story in Genesis chapter 4 where Cain and Abel, who were brothers, each brought a sacrifice to God, but there's something about Abel's sacrifice uh, in relation to Cain's sacrifice that made it acceptable. And, and in Genesis 4, we're told, in fact, that God regarded Abel's sacrifice. He did not regard Cain's sacrifice. And I'll be honest, this always confused me. Why? I mean, what is it about Abel's sacrifice that made it acceptable to God? And I, I got some insight um, from a friend this week. 
And, and basically this pastor that I listened to talking about this, he said, think about it this way. Cain was a farmer and Abel was a shepherd. And so Cain brought some of his crop and offered it to God. Abel brought a sheep that he had, that he had slaughtered and he offered it to God. But their offerings meant two completely different things. And you have to know the rest of the story there in Genesis chapter 3 to understand everything that's going on. Because in Genesis 3, God had spoken to their parents, Adam and Eve, and here's what God said to them. He said, after they had sinned against the Lord by eating the fruit that they had been told not to eat, they they hide, they try to sew together fig leaves to cover their nakedness. They're ashamed of who they've become in light of their disobedience to uh, God who created them. And God comes and he speaks words to them, and here's the basic message he gives to them. Adam and Eve... Don't try to cover yourself. Let me do it. Because, see, they've been trying to cover themselves with fig leaves. Comes to them and says, listen, there aren't enough fig leaves. Right? Your clothing won't work. Your offerings won't work. I have to clothe you. And then God says, and this is in Genesis Genesis 3, verses 15, 16, and 17, he says, I'm going to send somebody one day, a descendant of yours, and he will be wounded in a terrible battle, he will suffer, he will bleed, he will die, and it's through his wounds that you'll be healed and you'll be covered. You'll be restored. You'll be saved. And then something amazing happens, and people miss it, I think, in Genesis 3 there, but what we're told is God makes them clothes to cover their nakedness. And we're told very clearly they're not clothes made of leaves, of trees, they're clothes made of skins, which means... That in order to clothe them, God had to kill an innocent and then through the death of that innocent, offered to clothe them. And so the gospel's being rehearsed there in Genesis chapter 3. And in light of that backdrop, in light of that backstory, you see Cain. Cain, Cain comes and Cain offers to God the fruit of his hands. He's a farmer and he brings his crops, and he offers to God. And what this pastor said, and I thought it was brilliant, he said, you know, Cain's offering was a way of, in light of everything God had already done, Cain comes and he offers the fruit of his hands, and it was a way of saying to God, look, look at what I've done. Look at what I've accomplished. Look at what a good person I am. God, accept me on behalf of these things that I now bring to you, which are the product of my laboring and my working. But when Abel came, Abel comes with a very different sacrifice. And Abel's sacrifice says something very different than Cain's. Cain says, God, look at me and look at what I've done and accept me on behalf of what I've done for you. Abel comes and with Abel's sacrifice, he says, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. You see, Abel comes and he offers a bloody sacrifice in response to what God had already said and what God had already done. In essence, Abel's saying, God, I don't know how it will work, but my only hope is that someday you'll send a lamb like this lamb that will be wounded like this lamb has been wounded, and that, the, that, that, that I will be saved through the wounding of the lamb that you've promised. And so what, what, what you see here is two very different approaches to God. One is the Pharisee who stood in the temple and boasted of all the good works that he had done, and one is the tax collector who was standing over to the side who wouldn't even enter in, who was beating his chest, we're told, in Luke's gospel, and would not even raise his eyes to heaven, but cried out for God's mercy. And Jesus says in that parable that the one went home instead of uh, justified instead of the other. I mean, these are two different approaches to God, two different strategies for getting the commendation that we need. Cain's strategy is religion. Work hard and receive the commendation, right? Prove yourself and God will approve of you. Be good and God will be good to you. In other words, 
Cain believes, or the people who live and, and, and come after Cain believe, that righteousness comes through your own moral performance. But Abel's strategy, see, is the gospel. Abel's got a glimpse of the spiritual truth that we talked about last week, that righteousness is not something you work hard at and then give to God. It's something that he works out and then gives to you. Abel knows you don't get the condemnation because of your hard work. You get it because of the work of another. It's grace. See, salvation is not about you and what you do. It's about God and what he does. It's grace. Salvation is not about you and I being strong for God. It's about the fact that we're weak and God has been strong for us. And when you understand that, see, when that truth begins to sink down into your heart, that the righteousness that you need comes by faith, not through what you do, but through what God does, not works, but faith, see, only then will you begin to live a life similar to the lives of the faithful described here in Hebrews 11. That's the point. So the gospel, this is what we said, the gospel then, by offering you a righteousness that's by faith, the gospel secures you in the love of God for you, and that has a radical impact on the way you move out to live your life. See, if you're, if you're absolutely convinced that God loves you, he's for you, he'll come through for you, then what God says will begin to affect your, your reality more than your circumstances. You will live with courage and determination. You'll, you'll not be prone to quitting. You won't be afraid when you bump up against an obstacle. You won't be afraid of failure. You can be confident in God no matter how hard the set of circumstances that you're in are. That's what it means to live the life of faith, okay? And that's what we've been talking about. So, this morning we need to continue a little bit more in this passage. And there's three things I want, I want to see, again, kind of a, just by way of reiteration, but also expanding and opening up some other parts of what we mean by living the life of faith. But this morning I want a very, very simple outline. And here's what, I, here's what I want to talk about. The life of faith, why, what, and how. Okay? Hebrews 11.6 says, without faith it's impossible to please God. So why, why the life of faith? Why is it faith that is required of us? Without, without faith is sin, the Bible says. Anything that's w- without faith is sin. So why the life of faith? Then, another, what, then what is it, again, what is it really, that, what is the feel of, of the life of faith that, that God's calling us to in this passage? And then thirdly, then how do you get the power to be faithful, to move out, and to live this way? Okay, so... Why, what, how? So let's start with this. If you look at verse 6 of chapter 11, uh, the writer of Hebrews says this, has this very famous kind of summary statement, <clears throat> excuse me, of all that he has to say about living faithfully uh, in chapter 11. He says, without faith, it's impossible to please God. So why, why then is it impossible to please God without faith? You have to have faith, and you have to live by faith in order to please God. That's what he says, but why? Okay, so again, a little further review is in order. And just this, that faith means confidence in God that causes you to endure and not give up and shrink back when you're faced with what might appear like an impossible situation. That's what we talked about last week. Uh, The book of Hebrews, and especially this section beginning in verse 35 of chapter 10 all the way to chapter 12, verse 4, is about endurance It's about pushing through. These people were ready to give up, and the writer is writing this letter to tell them, don't quit, keep going. This book, this whole thing is about how you come up against an obstacle, and you don't shrink back, but you push through and you endure in faith. And the illustration we used last week was Abraham. 
who had been promised a son by God, and yet his wife was barren, and they were both too old to conceive in their own strength, right? And yet Abraham's confidence in God's promise did not waver. He, Romans 4 says, he hoped against hope because his confidence in God's ability to do for him what he could not do for himself in his own strength was great. We talked about Gideon, who was sent by God against the Midianite army, 300 men against ten, tens of thousands armed with torches and trumpets at God's command. <laughs> and yet he did not shrink back. He went out in faith and was victorious. And so to live by faith like Abraham or Gideon means, this is what we said, you can be weak but not be in despair. You can be weak and not lose your confidence and shrink back from the obstacle you're facing because your hope is not in your own strength, but in God and his strength and his love for you. And it is this posture of faith, right? Abraham and Sarah, childless and old and barren, or Gideon against the Midianite army, which is an overwhelming force, or the Israelites with their backs against the Red Sea and Pharaoh's army approaching from the front. It is this posture of faith that is the normative Christian experience. Here's what I want. These are not extraordinary events. That's the whole point the writer of Hebrews is making. This is Christianity 101. And if you look at the scriptures carefully, what you see, and it may be bad news to you this morning, God intentionally, on purpose, deliberately, providentially, whatever word you want to do, leads his people into these kinds of jams. Thank you, Carter. I knew it was coming. Right? And the reason is this. It pleases him. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. And here's why. Okay? Here's why. John Piper, who's a Baptist pastor in Minneapolis, Minnesota, has written a book called The Pleasures of God. And here's his thesis in the book. And, pa- and by the way, John Piper is, is a master at life-altering phrases and sentences. <laughs> and this is one of them. So buckle your seatbelt. Right, because these things come at you and it's just they, just they shake you. He makes this statement. This is the thesis of the book. He says, what pleases God the most is not our work for him, but our need of him. What pleases God the most is not our work for him, but our need of him. In other words, what lights a fire in the soul of God is not when we are strong for him, but when we're weak and he has to be strong for us. God loves to come through. He loves to prove his strength through our weakness. He loves to make a name for himself. God is God-centered. He loves to prove himself And it pleases him, and that's why he insists on providentially making us weak. He's committed to making us weak. He's committed to getting us into the kinds of jams that only he can get us out of. And to trace this thought out requires we do some good theology, because what we're talking about is what the theologians call the self-sufficiency of God. And so a scripture, I should have have got it put up on, on the screen, but I didn't do that this morning. Acts 17, verses 24 through 25 Paul says this about God. Just listen to these words. The the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man. Listen to this. Nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. So the self-sufficiency of God means God needs nothing from us. He's not served by our hands. He's not improved by our good works on his behalf. He needs nothing. He's served 
by nothing we do. So A.W. Tozer puts it in this way as only A.W. Tozer says. Listen to this. This is amazing to me. He says, were all human beings suddenly to become blind, still the sun would shine by day and the stars by night. So were every man on earth to become atheist, it could not affect God in any way. Almighty God, listen, just because he is almighty needs no support. He says the picture of a nervous, ingratiating God fawning over men to win back their favor is sickening. 20th century Christianity has put God on charity. So lofty is our opinion of ourselves that we find it quite easy, not to say enjoyable to believe that we are necessary to God. But probably the hardest thought for all, of all for our natural egotism to entertain is that God does not need our help. Now, the illustration John Piper uses in his book that I think is very helpful is that God is a mountain spring, not a watering trough. And I included this this quote, and I'm sorry to do so much quoting this morning, but these guys say it better than I could ever say it, right? And so either I could just say what they say and not give them credit for it, or I could just quote them. Those are my options, okay? So I'm going with the quotes this morning, okay? But listen to John Piper, and it's printed for you because it is so, this, this has so radically changed my life personally, this paragraph. Where, where what Piper does is he, he describes God as a mountain spring, not a watering trough. So this is how he puts it. You see that printed there in your outline. God has no needs that I could ever be required to satisfy. God has no deficiencies that I might be required to supply. He is completing himself. He is overflowing with happiness in the fellowship of the Trinity. God is a mountain spring, not a watering trough. A mountain spring is self-replenishing. It constantly overflows and supplies others, but a watering trough needs to be filled with a pump or a bucket brigade. So if you want to glorify the worth of a watering trough, you work hard to keep it full and useful. But if you want to glorify the worth of a spring, you do it by getting down on your hands and knees and drinking to your heart's satisfaction until you have the refreshment and strength to go back down into the valley and tell people what you found. You do not glorify a mountain spring by dutifully hauling water up the path from the river below and dumping it in the spring. That's what most of us are doing and calling it Christianity. The way to please God is to come to him to get, not to give, to drink and not to water. He is most glorified in me when I am most satisfied in him. I mean, that is earth-shaking. But what it does is it helps us understand not only what, why God requires faith of us, but it helps us understand what sin is. Because you see, sin then, if this is true of the self-sufficiency and the self-existence of God, then what sin is, is sin is more than just kind of breaking the rules. It's that, of course, but underneath that, sin um, is something even deeper. So when God loved, when he says, what I love the most is is when you turn, you know, what God loves the most is when we turn to him in our weakness and need and we seek his strength. I mean, the psalm we read this morning is a call to worship. He takes pleasure in those who fear him and who hope in his steadfast love. That is, those who put all their hope and confidence and joy, not in the strength of armies or the the strength of horses' feet, you know, but their hope and their confidence and their joy are in his power and his love. That's the thing that pleases God more than anything else in the whole world. And that means that the thing he hates the most is that when we feel weak or vulnerable, what we do not turn to him but turn to other things and look to them for strength. 
These are what we call idols. And an idol is anything that replaces God as the source of strength, confidence, or joy in your life. So think about it like this. When, when you feel weak and you start to despair, where do you go for strength? What do you need in those moments? What has to happen for you to regain your confidence? What has the power to make you feel okay? Is it a bank account statement? Is it a relationship? Where do you go for strength when you're overwhelmed and feel like giving up? Because, see, if your heart moves to something other than to God in that moment, that thing is an idol. And here's the problem. Idols can't give you the courage you need. Because they aren't durable. They're constantly letting you down. See, so... If, 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 the thing, if the thing that you go to, the thing that has the power to make you feel okay, if it's, if it's your, your financial portfolio, that's great until the stock market starts to tick down. And then what happens? You lose your courage. If the thing that, that has the power to make you feel okay is a relationship, the problem is, is that any relationship you find yourself in is a relationship you're in with another sinful person. And no matter how great that person is, there's going to come a time where in some way they're going to let you down. They're going to leave you. They're going to do something that's going to shake your world and you're going to fall apart and lose your confidence. But here's the thing. Unlike the idols we give ourselves to, God will never let you down. His ability to save you will never be diminished like the stock market. He will never let you down and he'll never leave you. And so it's only when you turn to him that you'll find the strength you need. And so see, that's the why. The why of the life of faith. Why does faith please God? Because he loves when we're weak and he can be strong for us. He loves to come through for us. He's a mountain spring, not a watering trough. But here's the second thing. So the second thing this passage teaches us then is this. If that is true, if, if God loves it when we need him, not when we work for him. If what he loves more than anything else is not when we're strong for him, but when we're weak and he has to be strong for us, then the second thing that we learn from this passage is that there's a certain feel then to the life of faith that we should come to expect and get ready for. It's paradoxical. Okay? Look at Hebrews eleven thirty-two and following these verses, this chunk of verses at the description of those who live by faith. On the one hand, I mean, this is, this is just great stuff, right? On the one hand, they're described as, as very weak. Let's look at some of the the descriptions. Tortured, mocked, flogged, imprisoned, stoned, sawed in two, persecuted, wandering and confused, poor, clothed in sheepskins and goatskins, destitute, without the basic necessities of life, afflicted. I love that word because it literally means crowded or harassed or harried or troubled. Mistreated, homeless, and not... A great day for those people, right? But yet, what you see is, though they're described in this way, at the same time, the same people who are described in terms of being very weak, you know, very needy, and very kind of not really impressive, are also described as accomplishing great things. These are the people who conquer kingdoms, enforce justice, obtain promises, stop the mouths of lions, quench the power of fire, They were victorious in battle, putting foreign enemies and armies to flight. And then in verse 34, if you look there, comes this summary statement. They were made strong out of weakness. And that's the paradox. Because you see, to look at these people in Hebrews, that the Hebrews writer is describing, you would not have thought much of them. They were flawed. Each of them in some significant way. 
They would have not been labeled a success on any scale by our culture. And yet, these people saw incredible victories. They changed the city that they lived in. So it was this paradox. Weak. Weak. Very weak. But then made strong out of their weakness. And this is the life of faith. Because there's a gospel paradox too. And the gospel paradox is just this. That Jesus did not come and through a display of great power crush his enemies. Jesus came and he was crushed. He didn't come and conquer. He was conquered. And to look at him hanging there on the cross, naked and bleeding and crowned with a crown of thorns is mockery. You wouldn't have thought much of him either. You wouldn't have looked at him in that moment unless you had eyes of faith and said, Behold, the eternal Son of God, the King of the universe. You would have spit and mocked and jeered the way the crowds did. You would have said, Who's that criminal over there? And yet he was the King of the universe. And when Jesus talked about the advance of his kingdom in the world, nobody envisioned the cross, and yet it was through the cross that Jesus triumphed. So the paradox of the gospel is just this. Jesus triumphed through weakness. And so the feel of faith, then, is this same pattern. On the one hand, if you live obediently to God's will and God's call, you will find yourself in circumstances that are overwhelming and chaotic and painful, where you feel weak. Okay? You'll find yourself, like him, carrying a cross. That's his way of putting it. You'll find yourself staring down some kind of death, Second Corinthians 4. Right? There'll be some kind of death that's in front of you. But you see, it's in that place. That place of weakness and desperation and need. That place where there's a death right in front of you, where you will also experience the power of God in the greatest measure. And what this is, is this is the gospel being replayed out in your life. So the life of faith means that you die for others the way Jesus died for you. That's what Paul's saying there in 2 Corinthians 4, which we read as an assurance of pardon. But the reason you can do that is because not only did Jesus die, he was also resurrected. And so what Paul says is if in response to God's word and God's call, you have to die. If there's a death, if there's some suffering, if there's something painful, some place of weakness you have to go to... If Jesus calls you to die, then you can move out not afraid of that death because the promise of the gospel is just like Jesus was raised from the dead. If he calls you to go and die for your kids, for your wife, for your husband, for your city, for whoever it might be, if he calls you to go and die, he promises to meet you at that place of death and raise you to life. And what we need is, what's lacking, the reason so few of us experience lives like the lives described here is we need the resurrection power of the Lord Jesus Christ coursing through our lives. But the reason there's so little resurrection power in us, the reason there's so little power in the church is because there's so little dying in the church. We're made strong out of weakness. The power comes when we're weak. The Apostle Paul says later in 2 Corinthians, I'm content with weakness, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities for when I'm weak, then I'm strong. And so here's the correction, okay, this morning. Here's the place where we need to begin to repent. A life of obedience to God does not mean wealth and comfort and safety. Those are great blessings, and if you have them, rejoice in God in them, but they're not necessarily the consequence of faithfulness. Look at Hebrews 11.13, right? Life of obedience does not mean wealth and comfort and safety. A life of obedience to God most often means less wealth and less comfort and less less safety, but more of God's power working in your life to accomplish his purpose in you and through you in the world. So where is God working to make you weak? 
Where is God asking you to die? There are two places I started to think about this in my own life. There are two places where I could say this was true of me. Uh, two times in my, I've been, in, I've been doing this pastor thing for, gosh, I don't know, 15, who knows, 15 years now. And over that 15 years, there are two times where I could say I felt the most uh, inadequate and, and the most weak. One was nine months we spent just before my mom died of cancer over in, in Orlando working with college students. And we, it was really hard. And we suffered a great deal of, um, it was painful, and uh, people got mad at us. And yet, when we look back, I think Ashley would agree with me, we look back on that nine months, it was probably some of the hardest times of our lives, but the fruit of what God bore in the lives of those college students is just amazing. Uh, the The second time where I really felt this in my life was, and I've told this story and you've heard it, but some of you maybe have not. We went to the Church Planning Assessment Center. We were thinking about planning this church, and of course, I was kind of the guy tapped to be the, the pastor and kind of the lead guy. And we went, and the first thing they did at this assessment center is they said, okay, you've taken all these personality profile tests. Now we're going to show you where you rank, you know, as far as one being a, one being a not-so-good church planter, ten being a really, really good church planting candidate. So we, we get it. They pop it up there. We look at it, and I, and I was ranked a two. A two out of a possible ten. Isn't that awesome? I mean, a two. And so this journey, I mean, this journey into this church planting thing has been, has been an amazing time where I've really had to um, really move out in, in something that's very uncomfortable. I've been talking to people that are friends of mine, and they, they, obviously I've done a good job because they've not felt this, but this whole lead pastor, church planter thing has been really, really hard for me for a number of reasons. First, I'm severely introverted, and to be a good church planter, you need to be extroverted. And so literally, you don't know this, but when I'm done up here, all I want to do is go slink back into my office and like fall into a coma, right? Because it, it takes so much energy for me to do this. And then yet, what, what I hear is I should be at the back door kind of shaking everybody's hands as they go out like a good pastor does. And I'm telling you, that feels like death to me. It's because I'm just, I draw, I need, I'm, I'm public. It's very hard for introverts to be public figures because where they draw their energy is in private. And so this, so my job forces me to be an, in, an extrovert when in reality I'm, I'm an introvert. And it's just meant I've had to really rely on God's power, uh, which has been great. The other, the other thing is, uh, the other death that I've experienced that I, it, more and more, I, the last three months of my life has been this series of places where I've really disappointed people that I love. This week I missed an, a, an appointment that was very important to me. Uh, that was very important to the people that I was supposed to be with. Uh, and I told, I told a friend this morning, it, it absolutely shipwrecked my day, my week. Because I was so afraid. I, 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 you know, I missed this appointment. I knew they were going to be disappointed and frustrated with me. And the approval of other people is so important to me that what drives me in ministry is the approval of people. And can I tell you, if a, if a pastor is driven in his ministry by the approval of people, people he's not going to last long. Right? Because I love you, you're wonderful, but it is impossible for one person to please every single person in this congregation. But not only is he not going to last long, he's not going to get much done. And my job is to make sure we get stuff done. My job is not, is not to make sure that all of you are happy with me. But can I tell you, that is, that is like staring into an empty tomb for me. Right? So for me to be what you need for me to be, there's, this, there's these just huge deaths. But I wonder where God's making you weak. See, where's the death that God is 
leading you to? What's the death that you're faced with? Are you even open to the idea of your, or is your immediate impulse to take whatever resources you have, if you have them, to rescue yourself from it? If there was a way I could, I, I would, but God has been gracious to me that he has called me to something and I have no resources to rescue myself from it. And if that's your strategy, to take whatever resources you have to rescue you from it, can I be your friend and say, don't do that, it's a losing battle. You can't escape the paradox. God's going to find another way to get at you. Just let him have his way. Okay? So what pleases God the most is not our work for him, but our need of him, because he loves to come through for us. What he loves is not when we're strong for him, but when we're weak and he can prove strong for us. God is a mountain spring, not a watering trough. And for that reason, he's committed to making us weak. And so success in being a Christian is not a matter of avoiding situations like that. That's impossible. God won't have it. And so we have no other choice but to become proficient at feeling weak but not giving up. At feeling weak but not shrinking back. At feeling weak but not despairing but moving confidently forward by faith. And so the last thing, and I'm running out of time. So how? Where do you find the power to do that? And the secret is in the few statements in Hebrews 11 where the people... Uh, The writer is talking about not only endure hardships and sufferings that come their way, but they actually move towards them intentionally and deliberately. So, a couple places I want you to see. For example, the first, it's not printed for you. Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 34, the writer says this about the people he's writing to. He said, you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you knew that you had a better possession and an abiding one. And so the scenario is part of the church was arrested and the only way for them to get the food and the supplies they needed in jail was for family and friends to visit them and care for them. But of course, if you did that, that identifies you as a co-conspirator. So the option was go and help and suffer the consequences or remain hidden and safe. And the church went and the authorities came and they burned down their houses and they took all of their possessions. And yet the Hebrews writer says not only did they accept this, he says they joyfully accepted it. Anybody on that train joyfully accepting the plundering of your property? And they did. So how? Because they knew they had a better possession and an abiding one. Second example is Moses in verses, uh, verse 26, who chose, we're told, to be mistreated along with the Israelites rather than enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. Verse 26, he considered the reproach of Christ Greater wealth than the treasure of Egypt. I marvel at that, do you? So how? Look there. For he was looking for the reward. The third example, and this is my favorite, verse 35. Some were tortured. (laughs) Some were tortured, refusing to accept release. That's a good strategy, right? You're being tortured, we'll let you go. No, no thanks, I'm fine right here. Right? How? Some were tortured, refusing to accept release. What? So that they might rise again to a better life. They're offered release, but they refused. Why? Because their life wasn't the life they were living for. And so there's this thread throughout Hebrews 11, this concept of the better. Over and over again, the better. So if obedience costs you your possessions, you can obey and suffer the loss of your possessions because you have better possessions. If, like Abraham, God calls you to leave your country, you can go because there's a better country. If obedience means your life doesn't go the way you want it to, if it, if it means your life's full of disappointments or hardships or sufferings, you don't shrink back from that because this life is not the life you're living for. There's a better life. So in all these cases, when you get where you get the power for the life of faith is the anticipation of a future possession. 
And the way you endure through the paradox of the life of faith is to know that there's something better coming. And this is exactly what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4. If you, I, it might be worth your time to go there real quick in that, call, in that assurance of pardon. He says, down in verses 16 and 17, Paul says, we do not lose heart. See, that's what we need. We need to not lose heart. How do you not lose heart? We do not lose heart for this light and momentary affliction. And by the way, I've never met a single soul in the middle of an affliction who considered it a light and momentary affliction. But Paul says this light and momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory that is beyond all comparison. That, that word comparison is the word hyperbole. You know what a hyperbole is, right? It's my favorite thing in the world to do. It's to intentionally exaggerate, to make a point. Ashley gets on to me all the time about it. I love to exaggerate. What he's saying is, is, there, is a, there is a glory that is so, is so hyperbolic, it's so exaggerated, you can't possibly imagine it. And so the result is that we are to be people who look to things that are not seen, that are not, that are, that are not seen, rather than looking to the things that are seen. See, that's, that's how you get the power. You have to become a person who looks not to things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen, who looks to the better that is coming, that is promised to you, so that you reach out even beyond this life by faith to the things that God has promised to you. And so I need to finish. I need to wrap up. But let me just give you three things to talk to your heart about. Remember, talk to your heart. Don't listen to your heart. Talk to your heart about these three things as you fight for the kind of faith that can give you the courage that you would move out. And let me just, these are the three, just bullet points. First, Christ is the treasure you long to have. Do you know that? Everything that you enjoy for its beauty is but a faint echo of him and his beauty. Every friend that you enjoy for their companionship is but a faint reflection of him, the true friend. Every love is just a cheap imitation of his love for us. Christ is the greater treasure. He's the greater possession. He's the greater country. He's the greater thing coming that you long for. And what that means is, secondly, the second bullet point is then everything you enjoy in this life will be a part of the life to come. If you enjoy it, it'll be a part of it. Everything that you enjoy that brings you joy and satisfaction in this life will be a part of the life to come, but it will last forever. And not only will it last forever, but you will have an ever-increasing capacity to enjoy it, which means that the joy you experience now is just a cheap imitation of the joy you'll experience then. And see, if you know that, if you know that, you can suffer the loss of anything. So you see what we need is a greater faith in God and Christ to believe that there is more joy, more lasting joy to be found in him than in any earthly treasure, that he is worthy above all things of our heart's whole trust and affection because he is the one we were made for, and only he has proven his worth by providing for us so great a salvation. See, that's what this letter's about. Lord, help my... Lord, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. Let's pray. Lord Jesus Christ, would you come now as we sing together this song of great faith, of just saying, I refuse to take up again uh, the, the slavery of law obedience. Uh, instead, Lord Jesus, I'm going to rest in you. And with the resting in you that you offer to us in the gospel, uh, speak of the promise that you make to us not only in our salvation, but in all of our lives, that where we are weak, you will come through. Where we are in need, you will supply. This is the promise you've made to us. You are a father who longs to give good gifts to your children. 
And so would you increase our faith in that reality that we might truly rest in you and in resting in you, uh, that we might be made strong out of our weakness, that you might bear the fruit in us that, that is the product of your spirit and your power and not our own strength. That's the kind of stuff we long to see happen in us and in our city. And so come and give us great faith. Increase our faith that we might rest rather than uh, trying to work, 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 work. And in resting, that we might tap into a power we've not yet experienced. That you might be glorified in us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Uh, just before I close this with the benediction, two things. First, if you're here, even if it's your first Sunday, and you would like to kind of get to know, or you've been here for a while, and you've had a hard time getting to know some, some of the broader sense of who the church is, and... Uh, getting connected with people, please come to the welcome lunch. Uh, we have enough food for everybody. Come and enjoy uh, that and hear from some of the community group leaders about what's going on in their groups. Our, our goal is that we could get people who are newer to the church kind of pushed towards community groups because that's where kind of the community thing happens for us. So come and be a part of that right after the service. Second thing, you've heard us talking about Elbow Elementary. Uh, we still, I think this is the last week, we still need some people to fill out some cards of thanks to the teachers there. We have a gift card to Outback. For every teacher at Elbert Elementary that we're going to do is just a way of saying thank you to them. And, but we want to send a personal note to them as well. So if you have a chance, come up and get one of these and write a little thank you note. And, um, and we'll get that to them. That would be great, okay? Now, uh, here, is, here is how we have to rework the gospel into our hearts, okay? Because especially for those of us who have been in the church for a long time, uh, at this point of the, of the service, the call is not, don't you dare walk out of this building and try to go be strong for God. He calls you to go out in weakness, resting in the promise that he will meet you at your place of need and your place of weakness and be strong for you. That's the promise of the gospel. That is the promise of the benediction. So receive then the benediction as you go and ask God to give you the faith in this benediction, through this benediction, to go out not trying to be strong for him, but believing that he will be strong for you. So receive it. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you his peace, both now and forevermore. Amen. Go in his peace.